Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald. Lee Younger just coughed <laughs> into the multiverse. <laughs> also joining us, Jed Brewer. Hello! With us, said multi-coffer all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger. Yeah, I still don't know how to work the buttons at however many 500-something episodes in. Yes, luckily that happened before, and as we were hitting record, so you were all spared the the auditory trip into the hellmouth that was <laughs> Lee doing a cough check into an open speaker system. But we're not gonna we're not gonna dwell on that because we've got a great show. We've got some awesome questions that were sent in. We've got a lot of fun lined up. But first, I must declare a very gray lady emergency. What? For the second time in recent <laughs> episodes. That doesn't seem polite at all. For the second time in recent episodes, we look to the New York Times because it's writing about the American church. And dear listener, you may ask <laughs> oh. yourself, is it is it good? <laughs> <laughs> and you know in your heart that asking that question is just not going to come out the way you want it to. Uh, we we talked recently about the the scandal of Baptists stealing sermon points from each other and making the New York Times, and this week we have something even darker than that. Um, oh, the headline reads: Facebook's next target, the religious experience. The company no. is intensifying formal partnerships with faith groups across the United States and shaping the future of religious experience. That's right. If you ever if you've ever been on Facebook and thought I wish this was more like church or been in church and thought I wish this was more like Facebook, <laughs> your horrible horrible lathe of heaven idea is going to come to fruition. <laughs> Does that count people who in the church have their Facebook app open? Oh. The article starts off just a great fashion. Months before the mega church Hillsong opened its new outpost in Atlanta, its pastor sought advice on how to build a church in a pandemic. From Facebook. Now, we've discussed in this show before how maybe if you're in leadership at Hillsong in the last year or so, you should be focusing on other things than Facebook. I can't think of any. <laughs> Resigny things, scandaly <laughs> things. But they didn't do that. They f- came into a formal partnership with Facebook where for months, Facebook developers met weekly with Hillsong and explored what the church would look like on Facebook and what apps they might create for financial giving, video capability, or live streaming. The pastor, Sam Collier, said he could not share any specifics. He had signed a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> now, if you're a Protestant pastor, and you're, you're familiar with the phrase, deal with the devil, which is often, you know, uh, metaphorical, a bit of literary flair, and you find yourself signing a document in order to keep Mark Zuckerberg's secrets. Yeah. Is that not a moment of pause? Matt, do we have proof that said document wasn't signed in blood? I assume all Facebook contracts are. Well, there you go. <laughs> I assume if you uh, bring the f- uh, rent out the folding tables for the, uh, the Palo Alto Facebook fun day, your contract is signed in blood. Yeah, yeah. It's Facebook. They have your blood anyway. We don't know how they got it, but they have it. <laughs> <laughs> A truly blood-curdling sentence from this megachurch pastor about Facebook. They're teaching us. We are teaching them. Uh, yeah. 
is did he mispronounce the word exploit? Is that <laughs> what happened there? I mean, you know, here's a fun experiment because I've seen this play out with my wife because my, my wife has a Facebook account and I think the only thing she uses it for is to go on and watch the, uh, the bridge, uh, uh, broadcast that we have on there and chat with the people and so forth. Otherwise she has no social media. She has no Twitter, no Instagram, nothing. And many, many, many times I've heard her explain that to other people that she's not on any kind of social media. And every single time, every single one of them has said, Oh, good. Don't just stay. Yes. That's it's good that you're not <laughs> do not just keep writing that out as long as you can, you know, right. I have to for work and other things, but if you can not, then don't. Yeah, there's a there's not a lot to be said for it. As as Glenn points out, there we have a, a we stream our Bridgecast on Facebook every Sunday at seven p.m. Central Time. If you want to check that out, pre plug. Um, but the thing about that is, it's not because we think Facebook is great. It's because no. <laughs> it's the thing that most people have. As I put it before, Facebook is the Walmart of the internet. And the one sentence in this whole article that could be just a searing, a Swiftian bit of satire, but I don't think it is, is this sentence. Facebook, which recently passed $1 trillion in market capitalization, may seem like an unusual partner for a church whose primary goal is to share the message of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go oh, on fantastic. to name the large denominations that are doing formal partnerships with Facebook. Well, so this is so interesting. In the very next paragraph, there's this whole thing that talks about hosting web services and socializing more casually to soliciting money. It says right. it's developing new products, including audio and prayer sharing aimed at faith groups. I mean, it did not take the article long to get to uh, products, uh, to the consumer, to the, to the, to the spending of the money. so we're we're going through this we've we're getting all the normal kind of you know buzzwords and but here's the thing this is the company referring to facebook's effort to court faith groups comes that it is trying to repair its image among americans who have lost confidence in the platform especially on issues of privacy you are in a bad way when you look to mega churches to to say who does the american public trust (laughs) who is doing so great in opinion polls retaining and growing their people in the church in the court of public opinion who's doing awesome churches we got to get us some of that well i think what you're you're forgetting is there's a mathematical formula matt where if you take one entity like facebook that has no credibility and mega churches which you know, uh, due to recent events have found themselves in a similar kind of situation. But if you take two entities that, that have a sucking negative credibility and you multiply them against one another, then you get like, uh, it cancels each other out. Like an ethical vortex. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Very possibly. Now we're speaking about these, these, money-raising models. And here's an example from a a large denomination that's partnering with Facebook officially. They decided to try two Facebook tools. Subscriptions where users pay, for example, $9.99 a month, 
and receive exclusive content like messages from the bishop and another tool for worshipers watching services online to send donations in real time. Leaders <laughs> decided against a third feature, advertisements during video streams. Wow. <laughs> Good I call mean, denomination on that last one. You know, if I may, I just, I just want to jump in there on messages from the bishop. Like, <laughs> I, I, I get the bishop. idea. I, I, I get the model of stuff like Patreon, where I just, yeah. I love this content creator. It's an art, yeah, it's yeah. a musician, it's a comedian. And I just, I love yeah. their brand. I just want, you know, more, I want to support them and I want more from them. And I just, you know, like, okay, I'm a preacher's kid and I grew up in a domination that has bishops. I've known a lot of bishops. No one wants to hear more from the bishop. No, there's no, no one that's like, I've got a poster of the bishop in my locker. Right. No one is doing this. <laughs> Who pays for extra bishop time? Yeah, there's there's one quote in here I like from uh, Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg, who you may recall from writing the uh, the book that was taken seriously for two minutes before it got turned into a girl boss meme, Lean In. Uh, she's also, I, I knew I recognized the name, so I went over to her Wikipedia page. And uh, uh, she is the person, uh, you may remember the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Oh, yes. Where Facebook leaked a bunch of people's private information, and there's some some belief that that may have messed with several elections in 2016. Um, apparently, according to inside sources reporting the Wall Street Journal, she is the person Mark Zuckerberg most blames for that. Oh, they wow. put her in charge of this initiative. But then ah. there's this wonderful quote from our friends at Wikipedia. Author Shoshana Zuboff called Sandberg, quote, the typhoid, the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm not sure what that means, but it doesn't seem good. But here's <laughs> what uh, said typhoid Mary had to say about uh, Facebook church. Our hope is that one day people will host religious services in virtual reality spaces as well, or use augmented reality as an educational tool to teach their children the story of their faith. And that's, of course, all insane pablum. But the one thing it makes me think is, if you're one of the crazy fundamentalist churches who believes that Jesus walked with the dinosaurs, can you augmented reality that? Because that might be worth the price of admission. I was about to say, my subscription just went in right there. (laughs) (laughs) Augmented reality as the future of liturgical drama. Oh. I, would, I would consider getting in on that, dude. Yes. Now that's a service we can sell. You can officially have attended your child, friend's child, niece, grandchild's nativity play, but you don't actually have to leave your house. Mm. And it's virtual you that has to sit there and endure that. Yeah. So I like the idea <laughs> of of pitching to people that in the earliest manuscripts... And the triumphal entry, Jesus entered <laughs> Jerusalem riding on a baby raptor instead of <laughs> on a colt. Right. And the whole thing just got so much cooler. Yeah, I, I, I have that. a refrigerator magnet in my home that depicts just such a scene, <laughs> and it, it warms my heart. And lo, St. Jeff of Goldblum did say, clever girl. <laughs> Life Finds a way. I was about to say, you could put <laughs> life finds a way in the live, laugh, love font and convince a lot of people that it's a Bible quote. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's this amazing paragraph at the end of the article. It says, you know, the technology has created in the lives of our people this quickness, this idea that I can just call and show up at Target and park my car and they open up my truck, he said. And then he says, the church is not Target. 
And I'm like, it, it kind of sounds like you want it to be like a little right. bit like Target. I and mean, if you walk into the Joanna Gaines section of the Target <laughs> and walk into any space that has been decorated in any suburban white church, what's the difference? But also, Matt, what's great is as the paragraph goes on, this guy that's speaking for the church, he gets so worked up that he he just kind of misspeaks, and the author mm, of the article yes. goes ahead and just let, lays it all out, and he says, you know, he's 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 it's partnering with Facebook. He said to to directly impact and help churches navigate and reach the consumer better. And then he said, "Oh wait, wait, consumer is not the right word." He said, correcting himself, "Reach the parishioner better." That's the end <laughs> of the article. <laughs> well, you know what, Lee? I feel like the idea. I think many churches are target, and I feel like I can prove it. Let me let me make my case here. So, at least in the Chicago area. Basically, all targets, you know, the little kind of, you know, food area at the front of the store. And, and most of them around here, um, I have no idea why, but are franchises of Pizza Hut. And the thing about Pizza Hut is it is the smell of my childhood. Like every yeah. time that I smell that pizza, like, oh, man, that really takes me back. That, right. that sounds kind of I, I, maybe I could kind of go for that. But that's how they get you, because yep. if you actually buy the Target Pizza Hut pizza. You go, oh, what have I done? This was a terrible, terrible mistake. Oh, I regret this immediately. And that's exactly how church works for the vast majority of Americans. Jed, that didn't sound like a theoretical experience of having eaten the Pizza Hut Target. Maybe enough times to know that it's a pattern. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think there's some things, you know, uh, you know, on on this show, we very often will make fun of some of these things, and then we try to figure out how we can make the big, big bucks. Oh, yeah. Right, right. You know, and so the thing that I would pitch if anybody put me in the planning meeting was, you know, I, I know that the, the, the epistle of James says, you know, don't show favoritism to the rich brother and ignore the poor brother who comes into your meeting. But, you know, if you're working with a subscription with Facebook— you could have, for people who have the higher tiered subscription, the premier access, they get to kind of vote on which worship songs we sing in the worship service. Sure. They probably get to take communion first, things like that. Look, I know that the Epistle of James directly says we don't do this, but uh, if we have a core constituency who's paying for the premier access higher tier. I don't know. Maybe they get to, uh, maybe they get to, uh, thumb the scale a little bit. Lee, I think this is great. I say, let's go all the way with it. I mean, again, if we go back to Patreon, you know, most things have different tiers, right? right. You know, you pay, you pay a little, you know, get this, you pay a bunch, you get a lot. Like if you want a lot from the Bishop every month, well then you go to our maximum <laughs> strength tier, right? Okay. So, so here's what I'm saying is if all you want is just to, you know, to, to get to help to select the, the songs off of K-Love that you want to hear performed on Sunday morning, well, then, then, you know, you should sign up for a basic tier. But maybe you want to be an elder. Well, we oh. have a tier for that, my friend. We have a subscription tier that we can hook you up with. There's all kinds of perks at that tier. I'm just saying, let's monetize everything, baby. Let's go to town. And by the way, could I interest you in some delicious, delicious Pizza Hut pizza? <laughs> And on that fantastic moment of corporate synergy, we will declare (laughs) emergency off. As I mentioned, we do have a weekly video of our own that goes up on our Facebook page. How much does it cost, Matt? (laughs) Well, 
how much does it cost the consumer monetarily or how much does it cost my own sanity? Those are very different things, but it's entirely free to the consumer. Uh, it is on Facebook because that's the best place to put it. You can come by and chat, but you can also check out any of our previous ones that we've put up. You can find those live. They run every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time. Facebook.com slash Bridge Chicago, and they're all archived as soon as they're done. We're having a lot of fun bringing the sermons, the songs, the energy of our Tuesday bridge service in the city to our friends on Facebook. We hope you can join us. We also hope that you will consider signing up for BridgeBox, missionusa.com slash BridgeBox, only $8 a month. Get some great encouraging stuff in your inbox at the beginning of every month and support the work we do. We're going to jump to our first question here. If you have this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can get in touch with us, or you can scroll down in your episode description and click the links you find there. Our first question comes in anonymously to our Tumblr and says, How do I recover friendships that were lost during the pandemic? I was terrified of COVID-19. Aside from text messages, voice or video calls, I had minimal contact with my friends. The lockdown measures were very strict in our area. Despite that, some friends would see everyone. I was scared of getting sick and getting others sick, so I turned down invitations to hang out, and I didn't invite anyone over. Now that the lockdown restrictions are being lifted, some friends don't want to see me anymore because I was not there for them during the pandemic. I feel very sad because of this, because but I still want to move forward. Well, how do I mend the relationships that can be salvaged, and how do I grieve the friendships that I've lost? Thank you for your help. And thank you for writing in such a, a rich and honest question. We appreciate it very, very much. And Jed, where would we start off? Well, the place that we, that I would have you start off is to look at the idea that life for most people and most things goes in seasons. Um, life is not just a static thing, right? So if you, um, you know, you take up playing, you know, with a, an intramural basketball team, right? Your experience of it one year is going to be different from your experience of it the second year, because all kinds of things are changing. It's just, it's, it's a different season. It's not that both seasons of basketball can't be great that they, they can, but they are going to be different. Different people are involved. You are a different person. You're in a different place in your life, at least by a little bit. Things are always in a constant state of change. And, and, you know, so life goes in seasons. And I think that if we can embrace that, I think we can probably begin to shift away from a lot of the concern and, and the fear and, and the negativity that is understandable, but kind of goes throughout your question. I think if you give yourself permission to say, this is a new season, then what that means mm. is we're not really looking at recovering friendships. We're looking at renewing them. And that's a very, very different thing. Uh, to try and recover friendships would be about trying to get back to where you were a year and a half ago. But that wouldn't be a good goal for a lot of reasons, one of which is you are not the same person you were 18 months ago. None of these people are the same people they were 18 months ago. And the situation in each of your lives is not the same. So trying to get back there wouldn't wouldn't make very much sense. But we can forge something new. We, we can mm -hmm. forge a relationship that makes sense for who you are today, that makes sense for who they are today, and, and the um, – uh, the, the, the time in which we find ourselves. I think the key thing is giving yourself permission to let these friendships, let these relationships be new relationships for a new season. Even if you had done the world's greatest job of handling COVID, and for what it's worth, it doesn't actually sound to me like from your question, like you did a bad job. Um, I, I think you're tempted to think that you did a bad job, but I, 
I don't, there's nothing in your question where I'm like, well, that doesn't sound good. I, I hear a person who's being cautious and may have had good reasons to be cautious. But even if you had done a tremendously good job, for these relationships to be healthy now, you would still need to renew them. Mm. Even if you had done the perfect job, you would still need to renew them for the new season in which you find yourself, the new season in, in which you are living and they are living. It's it's a bold new world, man. I mean, um, people talk about life getting back to normal, but that's not a good description. Life is not returning to what it was two years ago. Life is becoming something new. I think that there are new possibilities and new promises in that. I think that there can be new cool things that maybe weren't in place before, but we have to embrace that newness to really take a hold of those. And that's what I want to encourage you to do with your friendships is to not try and retrofit back to where things were, but to let this be a new season where you're developing new kinds of relationships, even if it's with the same people so that you can enjoy the time in which you are today. I think that's a really fantastic place to start off. And Lee, I'd love to get you to pick us up there because I think Jed has given us exactly the right uh, framework for that, that uh, whether it's with the same people or not, um, there's going to be a new relationship here, uh, pretty much however it goes. So what does that look like? If we start off with that idea, what would we actually do in order to fire those new friendships? It's fantastic. And and exactly as you say, I just want to come in on the back of what, what Jed's talking about. These are you do need to consider these as new relationships, um, not as the continuation of the old one. And when you when you frame it that way, then you can realize I actually have a whole different set of expectations and a whole different set of strategies. Um, you know, when like uh for instance, my children are about to go back to school um for the new school year. Um friends that they have with whom they've had, you know, kind of unbroken relationships. They've had a lot of chance to hang out. They, they, they show up in classes. They can just kind of pick up where they left off and those relationships kind of continue on people in their classes who are new people. They have totally different expectations for what it's going to take to form a relationship. So as an example, one of my best friends in the world actually just moved his family to our hometown. Um, I have a a child who's a, almost the exact same age as, as one of his children. And, you know, there's nothing that my friend and I would like more than for our kids to be best friends, the way we're close friends. And so, you know, we try to chuck them in the same situations. And we had this really interesting conversation, uh, actually this morning where we were like, you know what, we need to let them figure this out. Um, we would love for them to be best friends. We're going to we're going to manage these expectations and let them figure this out at their own speed. And what that means for these two kids is start slow, start small, have fair expectations. And so that's what I want to pass on to you is exactly as Jed's saying, as you think about these as new relationships, we're going to change our expectations. We're going to start slow, start small, have low expectations of let's hang out a little bit. Let's talk. Let me ask you some questions about yourself, about your life. Um, you asked me some questions about mine. We're going to get to know each other kind of from the ground up. And, and if you can think about it that way and you can change your expectations, then you can actually be a lot more encouraged about the progress that you make. Because if you have, uh, and what, one thing that means is, you know, like a, as you come out of the, the pandemic, we're not trying to have like a, you know, like a, 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 a movie marathon where we watch every single movie that this one actor that we both always traditionally loved was ever in. We're not going to do all of that in one night. We're just going to 
go, you know, I'm going to have you over for one movie. We'll have some popcorn and then you'll go back to your house. We're going to have, we're going to try some brief hangouts. We're going to go to have coffee. We're going to ask some questions and then we're going to go on about our life. We're going to start small, start slow, and just try to have some hangouts and think about this the way we would think about becoming friends with somebody for the first time. One thing I will say, I agree completely with Jeb. When I read your question, I thought, you know, you actually should feel good about the way that you handled the COVID pandemic from all the information that we have. Um, You you handled this situation with compassion for your community, with compassion and care for the most vulnerable in your community, some of whom you know and some of whom you don't know. You did what professionals um, and medical professionals were asking you to do based on the science. And as a result of that, I, I think that you should feel good about the fact that I did what was appropriate, I did what was ethically right, and... And so now I'm going to face a new challenge. That was a big challenge. Now I'm going to face the new challenge of building some friendships from the ground up. I will say this. It's important for all of us as we come out of this to make sure that we, in our, in kind of the rebuilding of our relationships and the renewal, to, to use Jed's word, that we have a lot of grace and understanding on each other and that we don't, that we don't throw around a lot of judgment. If you find people who are, make really free with the judgment, and are pretty stingy with the grace and understanding, that might that may be a relationship that you need to figure out how to mourn. And we may yep. need to think about the mourning um, and think about the grieving. And then what we want to put, I want to encourage you to put your energy and this kind of thinking that we're talking about, the strategic thinking of building a relationship from the ground up, we want to put that into relationships where uh, people have a lot of grace and understanding and are very, uh, very slow to come out on that judgment piece. When you find some of those, then that's where you want to put this energy into starting slow, starting small, having low expectations, and doing a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and building from the ground up. That's a fantastic place to take that. And Glenn, where would we close this out? Well, this is probably your first pandemic. So (laughs) uh, maybe give yourself a break. You know, the next pandemic, you'll do great because you know what to expect. I hope that's not for another hundred years, and that we're we're all go home to be with Jesus in the meantime. But you know, I think it's important to recognize when there's you know a once every hundred year type of event, we're probably not all going to be prepared to handle that real well. I mean, we can all tell the story of oh, you know, I made the best of it, and I you know learned about things and saw another side of whatever, and blah, blah. you know, you can you can. Uh, Talk about uh, the positives that existed there. But if people are going to be honest, they they would say, I was grieving, I was hurting, I was nervous, I was scared, I was exhausted from the continuous uncertainty of it all. And the last thing I wanted to do was get on the phone with my crazy family and let them see if they can't shred the last bit of sanity I had, especially considering since I'm struggling with this on this level, how much are they struggling with it? uh, If they have maybe a little less, uh, you know, resources uh, emotionally than I do. Uh, So I think it makes sense. I think we, I think we need to, be humble and I'll and understand I'm putting myself on that list if I'm not making that clear enough 
there are a million things I would do different and do better about my own handling of, of that time frame. I could sit around and beat myself up about that, but, you know, as I said, it's, it's my first pandemic too. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I feel like I maybe beat a reasonable expectation on a lot of days and I bet mm. you did too. So let's give ourselves a break on that point. I think if you, if you put all that together, it's making a, a simple point here that people are not, I have to believe this, are not condemning you nearly as much as you think they are. They, it may be miffed with you, or they may feel like you over, you know, cooked this or that point. Uh, but I honestly, I think that's the kind of thing we're all ready to move on from. That's all stuff that we want to put in the rearview mirror anyway. I think people will surprise you if you can be honest and you can be vulnerable on your part and say, you know, I was freaked out and. I wish I had handled things better. I don't know if I'm the only one that feels that way, but I, you know, I, 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 I was just freaked out and I, I hope that you can be understanding. I, people will, will surprise you. I, we work with people in, in our day job who have screwed things up with family and friends. And there are some that are just, you know, they're, they, they're just a withholding kind of person. And that's a manipulative uh, thing that they're on. Uh, but reasonable, loving people who care about you will definitely understand, and, and certainly we understand, and we're praying for you. That's absolutely right. That's all. That's all very good stuff. Um, I do want to give one last word on on the mourning aspect because as Glenn is saying, it's absolutely right. There's there's no reason someone would judge you for following health guidelines and not wanting to possibly get and spread a, a very communicable, very deadly respiratory. Uh, condition, but uh, some people really lost their ever-loving minds during this whole thing, and mm. it became a culture war issue. It became a personal issue. It became uh, just something they didn't want to deal with, so I didn't think about dealing with it. They, uh, you know, some people didn't die, so really, did anyone die? So is it that big of a deal? And you get that kind of stuff, and it, it puts us in the uncomfortable position of another thing which we haven't talked about yet, which is. Friendships you don't want. Yep. And some of us had experienced over this time. It was a very stressful time for everyone. It was a time when we saw some sides of people maybe we didn't see before, but uh, for someone to really, really hold it against you that you didn't risk, take a a, a foolish risk in order to, uh, you know, hang out and watch a movie at their place or whatever during the pandemic, and all you wanted to do was video call or text or any other way of communicating with people that, that probably falls in the category of friendship. You may want to reevaluate if you want or not. And yeah, that's not wrong. That's not judgmental. That is just, uh, we all have X number of relationships that we can manage at any one time. And especially at this time when we're refiring a lot of them, when we're uh, putting a lot of effort into doing the good thing, the good ideas that these guys were talking about earlier with the ones that, uh, are worth refiring. It's worth looking at anything that is okay to let fall by the wayside. That takes us back to where Jed pointed started us off. It is not going to ever be a uh, February of 2020. Again, we can't go back and just make the world be as it was in there. It's going to be a new thing, but there are ways we can make it a better thing. And sometimes uh, addition by subtraction is one of those ways. We'll move on to our second question here. It came in anonymously and said, 
So there was the whole modest is hottest controversy. Yeah. I totally get why people were upset with the song and with the idea, but I was raised to think modesty is a good thing. I still kind of do. Am I wrong or missing something? Another very, very good question. And Lee, where do we kick this one off? Yeah, I, I'm, we, uh, of course, always love follow-up questions on the podcast. So that is, uh, we we are widely open to the follow-up questions. Really glad that you wrote it in. And I would say it depends on what you mean. Um, it, it depends on, you know, it depends on the individual person, man. I mean, because uh, there's a couple of things that when you grow up in church stuff, you uh, depending on your tradition, depending on your environment, depending on your church and the culture of that place, a lot of folks grow up hearing a message that, you know, bodies are shameful things and uh, you should be ashamed for having one. And if if anybody else sins against you, that's somehow your fault. Um, and uh, now, even though you're the, you were the victim of someone else's uh, someone else's. Uh, you know, sinful thoughts, somehow you caused that. Those things are not true and they're not what the Bible teaches. So we need to say that from the beginning. Um, when you think about some of the, biblically, some of the passages in the, in the New Testament that a lot of this stuff is drawn from, one of the things that people really, really uh, miss the boat on is the fact that, that guys that were writing the New Testament about this stuff that we're drawing from were mainly talking about the division between rich people and poor people. Say that. Um, yeah. that, that rich people had a way of dressing that let everybody know, I'm rich and you're not. Thank you. Um, and so I'm going to wear my clothes in, cer- in a certain way. I'm going to wear... I'm going to I'm going to braid this this gold strand into my hair or I'm going to wear this jewelry or I'm going to you know I'm going to wear these first edition shoes in this way that I ordered from some website that you know that that they were they were crafted on a space station out in orbit somewhere you can't possibly get them. Hey Lee, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I just rolled up to church in my Ferrari. I, I didn't hear the last point that you were making. Can you repeat that? <laughs> well, if you would take those gold-plated uh, headphones out of your ears, you might be able to hear the points. Oh, that's a, that's an excellent idea. Yeah, I think you were. I think you were. I think you were Bluetooth listening to some album that no one else can get. <laughs> Because you're so wealthy. So the, you see my point. The, actually, we're talking specifically, and, and you need to keep us honest about this stuff, but as we've said on the podcast before, you can actually just go into Bible Hub and you can look up the passages from, for instance, First uh, Timothy chapter 2 or First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3, where both Paul and Peter talk about this issue that there were people who were rolling up into church and making it very plain, I have a lot of money and you don't. Um, and they were leveraging that that relationship with their wealth to gain power in church, exactly as we were talking about in the emergency, unfortunately. And that's a thing that's still going on today. And so it's important for us to recognize that a lot of those passages that people maneuver into a, a discussion about um, particularly the way that young women dress in church winds up uh, missing the point that the, the biblical writers were talking about a uh, wealth gap. And they were talking about the way people are treated based on whether or not they are wealthy. Um, so we, we need to we need to pay attention to that. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one more little thing in here just to speak to your specific point, and then or question, and then kick it around to these guys. And that is this: for you personally, 
you know, you may have a conviction that I really think that it's important that I dress in a certain way because I'm not comfortable dressing in the way that that other people are dressing. That is a totally individual decision. Um, what I would say to you on this this thing is the maximum way to 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 do this Christian thing is to recognize that Jesus calls himself the king of everything. He owns everything. He's in control of everything. For people that seek to be his disciples, he wants to be the shot caller over big things and little things in your life. As you grow in maturity and understanding in that relationship, you start to put more and more little decisions in your life into his hands, and you let him actually call shots on that. So how I spend my money, where I put the energy of my free time, um, how I handle certain relationships, all the way down to uh, you know the, the the way that I dress and how I feel comfortable based on what the Spirit of God is leading me and all those things. As you grow in that relationship of Jesus is the shot caller, I'm going to let him have more leeway and more play in, in what I'm doing, and I'm going to submit more of those things into his leadership. One of the things that he will also ask you to let him call the shots on is, let me handle everybody else and you don't worry about it. And let let me, you don't need to worry about what anybody else is doing. You and I are in an individual relationship. I would love to lead you and walk with you on what you're up to. And then you let me handle the rest of my kids. Um, one of the things that, one of the things that my children hate more than anything is when one of their siblings tries to parent them. And that's the thing that we want to avoid in this place. And, you know, and Christy and I will remind them, Hey, uh, your mom and I are the parents. We can handle this conversation. I would love for you to let us handle that. You go ahead and, and you handle you, and we will handle this situation. So as we grow into this relationship of letting Jesus call more and more shots over areas of our, li- areas of our life, one of those areas is going to be let him deal with his kids, and you worry about what he's calling you into, and that is going to bring you into more freedom, more peace, and more joy. Absolutely right. And a more freedom, more peace, and more joy is always a worthy goal and a great base to start from. And Glenn, what would we add to this? Well, I've got a new idea, and I'm going to float this out there. Uh, so Christians, uh, gather around, circle up. Um, stop talking about people's sex lives. <laughs> it's enough. Talk about something else. Do you have anything else? Do you have thoughts on other things? Because... It looks like you're obsessed with this stuff in a way that that's unhealthy for you. I totally agree with what Lee's saying here, and I want to really draw a line under a, a lot of it. I completely agree that modesty is not about condemning your own sexual feelings and your right. own desires. That's not what modesty is. That's and that's a repression of your natural, normal, healthy sexual self. Uh, if you're doing that and calling that modesty and saying that's a virtue and that's a good thing and you're going to get to your wedding day and you're going to have to throw that switch and you're going to have struggles with that, you're going to find out this was a, a an unhealthy approach to your uh, you know handling your sexual self and your sexual feelings and desires and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so let's not take that repression and turn it into some form of virtue. That's not what modesty is. Modesty is a different animal than that. And of course, you know, our sexual feelings are a complicated thing. And of course we need to manage those in certain sorts of ways, 
But just pressing them down and calling them bad is not, that's not good mental health and it's not good spiritual health either. Um, it's also definitely, as Lee is saying, not about controlling other people's sexual desires. Uh, people, it, it, you know, Lee's worked with teenagers much more than I have, but uh, I'm familiar with the, with the phenomenon that, you know, there's no stopping those thoughts from happening. So the idea that you're somehow creating that with the way that you're dressing is doesn't hold up to reality. Um, and I think uh, I also like what he was saying there about this idea of sort of uh, w- oh, modesty is not something where you make a show of how modest you are by putting on clothes that are, you know, trying to, signal something on that that's not that's not how modesty works that's not that's not what it's about modesty is about deciding who gets to see and experience the most awesome parts of you uh, that's what modesty is it's it's making that decision and having that control and drawing those boundaries and uh, taking hold of that to possessing that and making your own decisions about that uh, because there are awesome and amazing parts of you, and I don't mean just the physical parts of you, obviously, uh, but there are elements of who you are, your private inner self, your 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 physical body, the whole thing that you want to share, uh, and you want to control that, and it's about deciding who gets to see those and experience those parts of you. Uh, that's what modesty is all about: is is that uh, boundaries and those those. Um, that control that you have over that. Uh, I think it's, the, it, it's also needs to be understood that uh, in uh, certainly in American society, the idea of being there's, there's sort of a fixed idea that the less modest you are, the more attention that you get. And uh, that may be true in certain limited situations and circumstances. Maybe it's worth asking yourself, who cares about the attention? Mm. Uh, love is something to care about, and and modesty and love, uh, you know, have a relationship there. Of course, uh, having friendships and having uh, uh, people who are family to you—that's important. Attention is not an important thing, and so uh, I think maybe being we could look at all the jealousy aspect of that and say, I don't, I just don't need that in my life. And I don't need to be competing with that. As, as Lee was saying, I want the freedom to dress how I want to dress and, uh, you know, be who I want to be and, and not feel like I am competing with somebody. It's another uh, set of great points. And Jed, one thing we, we definitely look at here, whether it is modesty in the sense of, the way modest is hottest people mean it, mean it with dressing and whatnot, or the what the Bible talks about a lot more with what Lee was talking about with uh, wealth and those kind of things. Another aspect of this that must be talked about is that modesty is an entirely subjective term, right? Oh, that's absolutely right. I think one of the reasons why it's an extraordinarily bad idea to try and and put notions about modesty on other people is that uh, modesty is entirely relative. Um, it's entirely situational. Mm. Put it this way, right? Uh, so I've lived when I was a kid. I lived in a bunch of different places. Modesty on a farm is entirely different versus modesty on South Beach in Miami. Um, these these are not the same thing. Um, you know, d- kind of expected dress for one would not be the same as expected dress for the other. Uh, these yeah. these are relative things. 
And getting the mix up would lead to just a horrible tick situation. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a, yeah, it'd be a, a hilarious true. sitcom, but yes, many, many ticks. So, <laughs> you know, given that it is relative, given that it is cultural, given that it is situational, um, there kind of can't be a right answer to, you know, the right level of modesty or how modest is enough or or how modest is too modest. And what that leaves us with is the idea of it's an aesthetic choice. It's a preference. And Christians as a culture hate things that boil down to "Eh, that's a preference. So, you know, it's, it's whatever you prefer, but I want to use a little bit of a silly example for a second, because I I think it illustrates the point and it's going to, I think you, you ended your question by asking, am I wrong? And, uh, there's not an easy answer to if you're wrong, but let me walk you through a little bit of a silly example that I think may help to give some left and right limits. Okay, I like music with a ton of bass in it. Like, like more bass is more good. If you can shake my house with the amount of bass, that is the thing that I am looking for. That's It's just my preference. That's that's what I want. And And I want slightly more than that. Absolutely. We're looking for full-on structural damage. Now, here's the thing. If you like that, that's cool. Great. If you moralize it, if you say it is morally good to have music with bass in it, that's that's not really good anymore. That's just starting to get a little bit weird. Then if you say, given that it's morally good to have music with Mm. a lot of bass in it, other people have to have music with a lot of bass in it, too, or they're morally bad. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now we have gone fully off the rails. Now we are inventing sins. Now we are, to use Lee's excellent analogy, we're trying to be the parent now. We're trying to take the place of God and tell other people what right and wrong are in a way that we are not qualified to do. So it's this interesting continuum where if you start with, ah, I just like music with a lot of bass in it. Oh, it's great, man. I'm happy for you. I wish you all the subwoofers. But if we land in this place of saying, you must have bass too, or you're bad. Well, now we have, we are right out of bounds. Okay. So for you within kind of your relative cultural situational context, if you just prefer to dress and express yourself in a way that might be thought of as modest, if that's just what you like, great. You do you, man. If that, if that makes you happy, if that makes you comfortable, if if you just dig that and like that, that's fine. And, and critically, you don't even have to be able to explain why you're allowed to like things without fully knowing why, if you're just like, I just dig this. It just, it just, it feels like my flavor. Great. Good on you. That's awesome. If you're starting to moralize that where it's like, this is, it's not just that I like it. It's the, the morally right thing. (laughs) We're starting to get into some dangerous territory. We really want to look at that and we really want to be careful on that. But if we get to the place where we say, other people have to abide by my ideas of modesty or they are morally bad. That is when we have fully lost the plot. We is that, that would be point where am I wrong? Yes, that, that, that is wrong. We do not want to do that. So again, it's a thing where, um, if you, if you got something you like and you dig, it makes you feel good. Great. Good on you. But we don't want to turn that into a statement about your morality. And we definitely do not want to turn that into a statement about other people's morality. That's really, really well put. We're going to move on to our final question here. Comes in anonymously and says, Hi, say that hosts. Hope you can help. 
We do too. I feel like I'm falling apart. My boyfriend and I love each other and want to get married. We're talked, we've talked about it and are both on the same page about that. But the weight to engagement and marriage is driving me crazy. He wants to get married sometime next year because he wants a big wedding and all the people there. I don't care if it's just our two families in attendance a few months from now. I just want to be his wife. And another excellent, excellent question. And you've come to the right place for people who want to talk about weddings. Or maybe more importantly, people want to talk about not weddings. That's really our <laughs> wheelhouse. And on that front, Glenn, where will we start off? Well, uh, I, I'm... I'm certain I'm the wrong person to give a sensitive answer on this one, but I'm going to try. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I I know I can't be the only one on the podcast who has uh, counseled couples, particularly through the pandemic, but you know, pre-pandemic as well, where we're going and having a little private ceremony and signing the marriage certificate. And then we're being marital. I'm, I'm, you know, you know what I mean by being marital. Um, and then a year from now, doing a big to do. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. If you feel like you're being deceptive, then tell all the people that's what you're doing because, right? You know, why not? You know, if 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 that's, I think what you want to do here um, has problems with it anyway. Uh, so. You know, you might as well just own up to that part of it. But um, if I, there's nothing spiritually wrong with just saying we want to have a little private ceremony, be legally married, and then you know have the actual ceremony later. Um, so you could do that. That's that's an option, and it's definitely the one I would take if I was with someone who wanted to do the pageant uh, that apparently uh, your your uh, would be husband wants to go through. Um, but let me make a case for a few things here on rethinking this whole idea. Um, let me ask you to do an experiment. Go up to any married couple that you you respect. You know, you you think they have a good marriage and a healthy marriage. Maybe pick three, four people where you they have a good and healthy, strong, long term marriage. Go up to that married couple and say, "Would you give up a year of intimacy?" So you could have a big party with a million details and put all the pictures on social media. <laughs> That's a married guy who's cackling in the background. Uh, none of them. I repeat, none of them will tell you that's a good trade-off. I, I get, look, I, I'm going to try and put myself in, in the shoes of somebody who loves the idea of a big wedding, even though I'm not that person. So I'm trying to be honest about that part of it. And I, I think I understand the idea of something that you look forward to your whole life and something that you want to be a special memory that you look back on and you want it to just be, a, you know, a big culmination and, a, and a, all of that. Uh, that's about having people that you love there. That's about having time and energy to focus on the moment that you're experiencing there. Uh, if you were at Jed's wedding, if you were at Matt's wedding, you yeah. had that. Yeah. Uh, very stripped down, not expensive, not a ton of crazy plans. But what that did is that allowed them to connect with each other, to connect with the people that were there. We could all interact with each other more because there wasn't all a bunch of weird to-dos and skits and things and whatever and the pageantry of it. 
the thing that you want might be better served by having something small and quick where we can get this marriage underway and uh, recognize the wedding is just one day. Uh, the rest of it is the important stuff. That's a an excellent, excellent place to start that off. And Jed, where do we take it from there? Well, you know, I think um, as we as we read your question, I think most of us had a similar thought of, you know, a, a pretty direct solution would be for you guys to just go to a justice of the peace and get married and live your lives. And then six months from now or a year from now or 18 months or whatever, you know, you throw a big party and everybody celebrates it. Um, I've, I've known a lot of people who've, who've done that. Um, and, you know, again, I think for pretty much all of us, that was, you know, kind of our first thought. So here's the thing is, if you asked us this question, there's a chance that that thought had just never occurred to you before. But there's also a chance that that thought had occurred to you and you're not comfortable with it. And so the question that I would want to dig in on is, why wouldn't you do that? And I imagine that you wouldn't do that because there's someone that you are trying to keep happy. And I really, really, really want to encourage you to to think about who that is that you're trying to keep happy and why you feel the need to do that. Because... A successful marriage. Look, we we um, we are offering our congratulations in advance to you and your your future spouse. We hope that you go sometime very soon and tie the knot and have a very long, you know, seventy years of married life together, and it's great. And I hope that your marriage is successful. And I can now define for you what a successful marriage is. A successful marriage is about figuring out what works for the two of you and then doing that. That is how you have a successful marriage. And I think it's worth looking kind of at round one. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we figure out what kind of arrangement per our nuptials and a party and whatnot works for the two of you and then do that? One of the things that I've seen play out a lot, not every time, but very frequently as couples are getting more and more serious and heading towards marriages, there are a lot of people, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's family members, but there are a lot of people jockeying for position and trying to figure out how much pull do I have over these people? I used to be able to tell Cindy what to do. I used to be able to tell Ryan what to do. Do I still get to do that? Do I still have rank here? Do I still get to call shots here? And I think one of the unfortunate things that, again, this isn't always true, and I hope it's not true in your case, but when those dynamics go on, one of the things that you kind of have to decide for yourselves and then communicate to other people is, no, you don't get to call shots anymore. You you don't get to to pull rank. You don't get to tell me or my spouse what to do. You don't you don't even really get to suggest what we do. We're 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 going to do what we do, and that's it. Because that's not only is that the nature of being married, that's like literally the biblical definition of marriage, where a man will leave his father and mother and a woman will leave her home. It is it is leaving and then starting something new. And I think that – I don't know. Um, this is kind of supposition on top of supposition, but I'm guessing that that part of what may be going on for you guys is that there's you know some guilt of, you know, um, do you care about your needs – more than what matters to Aunt Mildred is, you know, is that what's going on here? And actually, your answer should be yes. I, I do care about um, my my sexual needs more than Aunt Mildred's preferences. 
I do care about the health of my relationship with my future spouse more than Aunt Mildred's preferences. I do care about uh, my living situation. And if you're in the United States, my health insurance situation uh, more than Aunt Mildred's preferences. I care about all those things more than Aunt Mildred's preferences. It's not just um, sex. When people get married, there are a ton of implications. And hopefully for you guys, it's going to make things better for, for both of you. And being honest that those things need to come first before the random preferences of random relatives, that that's a good thing and a necessary thing. That's not selfish. That's not bad. That's not disrespectful. That's not dishonoring your father and mother. It's not any of those things. It's being grown. It's recognizing, you know, we have things that we care about, things that we're trying to do. We want to honor our faith tradition in the midst of all that. And there's a way that we can do that. And we're going to move forward on that. We're going to invite people to to celebrate that with us to the extent that they're, they're willing. But that's kind of the marriage thing all along. In other words, if you kick down the can down the road on this one, if you say, well, we do got to keep Aunt Mildred happy, just so you know, you're going to have to keep on keeping her happy for the next 70 years because that's, that's the nature of relationships. We want to encourage you to start strong, do what works for the two of you, encourage people to celebrate with you. I think not everybody will be thrilled, but I think you'll be pleasantly pleased with the results and you'll be in a much better place for the two of you. Absolutely right. I think that's a really, really great take on that. And Lee, I'd love to hear you look at another aspect of this for us, because as Jed points out, the the way you deal with uh, relatives and other people who want to have input in the run-up to wedding is a, is a a preview for coming attractions, as one Hello. might say, for how you're going to deal with those people going forward. But uh, oftentimes, the wedding ceremony, the ideas around the wedding, can be the first big test between the couple of how do we deal with things we we have a, it's kind of the first big project and sometimes maybe mm. the first thing that there's big disagreements with on the first time and i want i want to point out to our question actually that is no way shape or form unique to her and her boyfriend um but it is a moment to that can be really really good or really really bad right yeah well it's it's a really good way to frame the question and i think that there's an important you know, like not not everybody that's listening to this. Uh, some people will be married, and some people will be dating, and some people aren't with somebody right now. But not everybody that listens to this is going to be dealing with your exact issue. But an important thing for pretty much anybody who's listening to this is, um, just some tips on how to work through a conflict like this because there's there's a kind of there's a kind of perception in a in a situation or a conversation like this that it's a zero sum game. We're either going to do the wedding. Uh, in private and then have a party a year later, or we're going to do the big wedding, uh, you know, a, a year later and we're going to wait on that. That's it. We're d- and we're just going to go back on for back and forth on that. And then somebody's going to win. But a, a really healthy thing for your marriage teamwork going forward is, uh, is a question that, that Jed started to ask in a, in a certain way. And I want to enter it into, uh, enter the exact same question into this conversation a different way. And that's the question. Why? Okay, so you would like to have a private small ceremony and have maybe have a party later. Your fiance would like to wait the wedding as long as it takes until you can have the the big throwdown, the whole the whole thing. Okay, so instead of just saying like one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose, what we need to dig into is why do you want that? 
Um, now, Jed may be right. It may have to do with a relative who needs to be put into check and we need to draw some boundaries. And if that's the case, you just need to rewind, uh, you know, about three minutes and listen to that very good answer again. If, but it's worth digging into because if there are some emotional reasons about getting certain people together or, um, there, you know, if it, if it's just like, this is just something I've always wanted, or for me, it's important that we have the celebration of our community, you know, these things. All, all I'm saying is, if we can, in a non-judgmental way, have the why conversation all the way to the bottom with the idea of, and I love Matt's word, that this is, as a couple, this is our first big project. That's a great word. A marriage is a teamwork, working through different problems in life together. Now, if we can get to the bottom of why, then can we think of a creative solution where we can achieve the reasons you want the big wedding without the big wedding ceremony? In other words, can we forge some kind of compromise that achieves something of what you're looking for without it being a zero-sum thing? Either I win or you win. Um, Can it be a we both win because we took the time to do the difficult work of figuring out what lies behind this, what's underneath the emotional fervor of this, and is there a creative and cool way to achieve some of those things, any of those things, like pieces of those things. I love Glenn's idea of let's let's uh, look at how much money and how much time this is going to be. What if we did something else with that? See, that's the kind of thing that, Look, if a married couple can have a conversation like that, there's no problem you can't solve together. Of we dig into the why, we don't judge the emotions, we try to find a way to achieve the thing that we want behind there. We look for a creative solution. We work together as a team. Now it's not just, well, one of us lost and one of us won that fight. Now it's, we are a really good like unit of working together to create creative solutions <clears throat> that other people may not understand. We don't really care about that, but we got what we were looking for. That would be really, really cool. I mean, you know, it's one thing for a bunch of podcast hosts to make a call and say, well, this is the way we see it. I mean, look, I'm a pastor, so I have, <laughs> I have officiated l- like literally dozens of weddings um, in my vocation. I can tell you that the coolest and most meaningful ones were always smaller, always cheaper. I can tell you that. It's absolutely true. I don't expect anybody to believe that, but just wait. The The most meaningful ones you'll ever go to are smaller and cheaper. That's just yeah. the way that is. But it's one thing for us to make a call. What's really important, though, and it's not just for you guys. It's for anybody listening to this who's in a, who's in a long, committed relationship, especially a marriage. When you get into a situation where we can't agree on what to, how to go forward, can you do the complex work of, can we investigate why you feel the way that you do? And is there a way that we can compromise and create a creative solution together as a team where it's not 100% the thing you wanted, it's not 100% the thing I wanted, but it's this new funky thing where we got a lot of the things that you were feeling and wanting in your heart, even though we didn't judge those things, we found a way to make some of them happen. That would be so rad. And it would be so good for the beginning of your marriage. That's the kind of thing that we want to put work into. Why do you feel the way that you do? Now, 
if it's something like Jed's talking about where it's maybe just an unhealthy relationship thing we've never investigated, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to grow and make some changes. But if it's a thing where it's like, uh, we found out that the reason I feel this way is because of da 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 da, whatever the thing is, and we thought we thought of a really cool sideways way to uh to figure that out. Well, awesome! That's really really cool. You've worked together as a team. You've created a a, a solution nobody's ever thought of in a in, in your first big project together. Congratulations! You are now the kind of married teamwork that knows how to solve hard problems. Absolutely right. That is, that is all great stuff from all these guys. I can, I can offer a bit of a unique perspective on this because um, I've done like several of these uh, potential things around my uh, one, I want to be clear, one marriage. But uh, as if you are a longtime listener, you may remember when I got married, I screwed up the paperwork. So we did also have to go see a judge and do it that way on the, uh, the backside. We also had a a separate uh, little wedding celebration party uh, down there in Oak Ridge at triple C for all our friends who who couldn't come up to the, couldn't make the drive and we were trying to keep things small. And because I did several of those things, I can tell you um, there's some fears about splitting things the way these guys are talking about finding a, a unique solution, something that's not particularly the way it's always done that you may have. And I, I can speak to them in general in that, it's fine for the most part. I can speak to them in specific because one thing you may have. So let's say you take this idea that you've been given of go get married now. That's either just as a piece. If it's important to you that you have like a certain liturgy with the vows, you can, I, we all know a lot of pastors and priests and they don't really like to crowd at a wedding either. So they'll probably be happy to do that off the side for you on, on your own and get that done now and do the big party the next, next year sometime. One question you may have is, well, won't people be offended that they got only got invited to the party and not to like the wedding that was super small and all that? Here's what I can tell you. No. <laughs> people don't like the ceremony part of a wedding. Here are the things people like at a wedding in order. The food. Yeah. The open bar, should there be one? That would be one probably for a lot of people. Uh, and there's the two moments of the ceremony. One is her walking down the aisle and the other is he may now kiss the bride. Due to the uh, glories of... Uh, photographic and videographic technology, you can capture those and put them on Facebook and everyone can see them. Uh, You get to make the guest list. You get to make the who's in the party list. And it's a really good litmus test, as these guys have pointed out, because the people have you back, love you, want you to figure out a thing that works for you. They're happy you did a thing that works for you. Anybody who would say boo about that, that's about them. And that's really not worth getting into. Lee, one more thing. Uh, just, and I know Jed will completely agree with this, having had a lot of experience in photography and videography. Um, if you do this on your own timetable, the pictures are going to be a lot more relaxing. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, there, yeah, you can pick the perfect day where it's the perfect weather. You you don't have to you don't have to sacrifice and pray to all of you know uh, all of the everybody to make you know to please let this day be everything's perfect. Everything has to happen today in this day in this way. You can actually have the greatest photographs ever. You can set them up wherever you want to. They'll be amazing. And you can do that whenever you want to. And it'll be much less stress. I think that's a really, really great point, Lee, because the the thing there is what I think Lee's really, really pointing to is 
there are a lot of things we consider bundled together when it comes right. to a wedding. The pictures, the ceremony, the the reception, the the gifts. There's no it is not written on any tablet that those all have to happen on the same day in the same place. Right. You can you've been to a wedding where they did the ceremony here and the reception there and there's no reason those have to happen on the exact same day or even in the same year. You can figure out a solution that works for you. As we pointed out, uh, we we don't want to uh, totally dismiss your your boyfriend's feelings. Uh, you even though we think big weddings are silly, if that's what he wants, we do have to find a way, as Leah's pointing out, to to work towards something we both want and not minimizing and diminishing what someone else wants because uh, it's the thing that takes longer. But you're you're certainly not going to do that. There's a lot of good options if you're willing to entertain a wider variety of options than you may have thought was possible. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that totally anonymous, you can check out our live Bridgecast every Sunday, 7 p.m. Central Time, facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. Check out the song this week. It's been a minute since we've heard from our friends in the Deacons Division. This yeah. is our version of Be Thou mm. My Vision. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The Say That Podcast announcing our exciting new partnership with MySpace. And yes, it still exists. Shake, feel.
a super size But the love he being hotter through the spirit and his words So you know I stand my ground in this world to save the world